another example is that 40% of man-made heat, um, of anthropogenic heat in cities is caused by traffic. So land use and transportation planning and vehicle electrification are actually critical levers for urban cooling. Hi, I'm Rushad Nanavati. I work with RMI or Rocky Mountain Institute where I lead our program focused on cities. And you are listening to the Understanding the Future podcast. Hello everyone, I'm Punit Gandhi, Senior Associate with the Climate Center for Cities at the National Institute of Urban Affairs and welcome to the Season 3 of Understanding the Future podcast. I have been working and studying in the field of sustainability and climate change for more than 8 years and I have realized that I have a lot of questions on how we can build cities in India that are more climate focused. With Understanding the Future podcast, I interact with experts, entrepreneurs and government officials to understand what it takes to bring all the different solutions to the ground, as well as how can systemic changes be developed on ground. We will further anchor all the topics being discussed with different skill sets required. This will help us understand the future of cities and future of work in Indian context. If you are tuning in for the first time, do check out our previous episodes. Also, don't forget to check out the Climate Practitioners India Network, a members-led solutions-oriented platform for climate practitioners across India. And join it through the show notes. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Season 3 of Understanding the Future. I'm your host, Pramit Gandhi, Senior Associate with the Climate Center for and today we have with us Rishad Nanavati. He is the Managing Director of Cities Program at the Rocky Mountain Institute. And today he will help us understand the topic of urban cooling in India. Welcome to the show, Rishad. Thanks very much, Puneet. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and thank you for joining us because I think uh, we are just passing through the summer in India right now while uh, southern parts and western parts uh, with heavy rainfall in Delhi right now, it's hot as hell. So, what do we exactly mean by urban cooling and what are we actually picturing with urban cooling in site? I think, put really simply, urban cooling is about providing people with thermal comfort in our cities. Um, and the emphasis really here is on people. Uh, in, in India, fewer than 10% of people actually have uh, access to air conditioning. So we have to find ways to cool, to provide thermal comfort, to essentially provide safe and healthy environmental conditions, not just in or to cool individual buildings, but to the city as a whole. Uh, India has an outdoor labor force that's about 400 million people. Uh, many of whom obviously work and live in cities. You're talking about people like day laborers, construction workers, street vendors who don't have the luxury of being able to retreat into an air conditioned space anytime, uh, conditioned outside, uh, conditions outside get, that get, um, dangerous or truly uncomfortable. Uh, and so we have to 
think about not just cooling individual buildings, we have to think about and work on actually lowering the temperature in the entire city or in the entire metropolitan area. Uh, and as I you know, said, uh, and I think I'm quoting, might be quoting Shakespeare or misquoting Shakespeare here, what is a city but its people? Uh, so emphasizing, again, um, rather than the built environment abstractly and recognizing that our cities are warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet. And that's why working on the urban cooling agenda in particular is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as you're mentioning, cities are warming uh, twice as fast. What, why is that cities are the cause of such kind of what is exactly happening that is making so cities more warmer than the rest of the area? Why, how are we trying to uh, envision what are the different factors per se which cause this heating inside the city? It's basically the urban heat island effect. And what the urban heat island effect is, uh, is a phenomenon that causes more rapid and more severe warming in uh, heavily built up environments. So cities have a uh, preponderance of impervious and built up surfaces. So either this is our asphalt or our, our, on our roads, the concrete on our sidewalks and in our buildings. Um, the waste heat that is generated from economic and industrial activities, uh, yeah, quite significantly the waste heat generated by air conditioners themselves, the waste heat generated by vehicles, especially vehicles with internal combustion engines. You have a concentration of all of these things that either absorb heat or actively emit heat in the urban environment. And that's what leads to this urban heat island effect. And that's what leads to this uh, you know, 2x warming in, in cities versus um, surrounding rural um, areas and, and, and ecosystems. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the, and I think that's most of the thing that anyone in urban area would be doing or dealing with on day-to-day basis. Right. Uh, but so when we come down to India as a, a country, it's diverse as what are the other different kinds of challenges we are facing in tackling this uh, problem right now? Uh, where is the challenge currently exactly uh, properly grounded in that? Is it administration? Is it the build? Uh, how is it? Uh, what what challenge are we exactly looking at when we are trying to solve this in India? In solving this as a problem. Yeah. So the headline challenge is what we were just talking about, the fact that our cities are, are warming so much faster than the uh, the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Uh, and in the context of rapid urbanization, that becomes an even bigger issue in the context of, of India. Uh, there were some estimates that, recent estimates that suggested that the uh, before the end of the century, uh, Average temperatures in urban areas could be four degrees Celsius higher than they are today. And that represents a potentially catastrophic difference. Uh, because the risk is nonlinear, and this is the second challenge I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to. Yeah. Uh, so the, the best way to uh, 
uh, or one of the best ways to assess heat stress is through what's called a wet bulb temperature. And I won't go into the details, but basically what that is, is a combined measure of heat and humidity, both of which affect uh, human safety and thermal comfort. And the difference between, you know, uh, 30 degrees, a uh, 30 degrees Celsius wet bulb temperature and a 35 degree Celsius wet bulb temperature is not a fractional difference. It's very literally the difference between life and, and, and death. Uh, so that's, that population protection imperative is one uh, of the most significant challenges we have with respect to this problem. Uh, and then there are huge costs associated with uh, health and productivity and, and livelihoods um, uh, in addition to in, in addition to lives. Uh, heat has been called uh, a silent killer. Um, all cause morbidity and mortality, basically illness and death from a variety of different conditions spikes very, very significantly during heat waves. And those um, deaths and illnesses are often, usually aren't attributed directly to heat, but it's a very, very significant underlying cause. And if we as a country are, are, are serious about um, uh, poverty reduction, lifting up you know, the 200 million people in India living in extreme po poverty out, out of it, considering those health and productivity impacts is, is really, really uh, in, important. By some estimates, uh, left unaddressed, the problem could rob India something like 2% of, of GDP. Wow. So it does look like a quite an elaborate challenge in itself, especially looking at it's almost in all different sectors that this will cause an issue. So how how is it possible to actually solve this problem? How do we make sure that the, our cities don't get heated up so much if we can actually bring uh, urban cooling as a mainstream thing for India? So something that I think you and I have talked about in the past is the importance of, of taking a comprehensive, holistic, sort of whole systems approach to the problem. Yeah. Because it is not one that we can just air condition our way out of. Uh, because as we were discussing, not everyone has access to air conditioning. And, uh, secondly, because of the climate impact associated with air conditioning, ACs are our most common response to the problem, the most common adaptive response, but they're also a very, very, uh, significant cause of the problem. Uh, so under business as usual, they could consume as much power as the entire U.S., German, and Japanese economies do today. The most common refrigerant we use in IACs, and quite often uh, uh, is leaked by IACs, is nearly 2,000 times more potent than carbon dioxide as a as a global warming agent. So understanding the the connections between the built environment the energy system, nature, and being able to work across those silos is really, really important. Uh, and I'll point maybe to a couple of examples. Uh, heat plumes uh, that are generated by air conditioners exacerbate the urban heat identity. So it's important uh, to not just serve cooling lead, uh, needs efficiently, but it's also important to reduce those requirements. Another example is that 40% of man-made heat 
um, of anthropogenic heat in cities is caused by traffic. So land use and transportation planning and vehicle electrification are actually critical levers for urban cooling. Um, third example, vegetation, trees and water bodies have a profound cooling effect. So uh, restoration e ecology and, and forestry in an urban context is important, not just from, say, a bio biodiversity or a carbon sequestration perspective, it's also really important from a cooling perspective. Yeah. And we, if we're serious about addressing this problem in our cities, we need to be thinking about all of these. Absolutely. Uh, no, I, I, I do like these examples as well because I think they are quite interesting to say that how much of effect it has. Uh, so, as you mentioned, that uh, looking at it comprehensively, maybe we can start from uh, the smallest uh, piece in the puzzle, which are the buildings in any city. Now, let's yeah. take maybe one by one each of these steps forward, and uh, what is something that can be done with buildings, and how can that be done to make sure that we are able to solve uh, this problem, at least on that level. Sure. Uh, and, yeah, happy to start in in that direction. Uh, so I, I would say that it's the, the smallest unit you're thinking about is even smaller than the building. It's the, okay. yeah, it's the, in, it's the individual, it's the person, uh, and, uh, and then the, the room, um, even before the building. So, um, uh, at, when you're talking about the scale of, of the room, the scale yeah. of the family, yeah. uh, uh, one of the things you're talking about is super efficient, climate friendly cooling equipment. And uh, uh, it's really important that we have standards, enforced standards in place that take the worst performing, most inefficient uh, air conditioning units off the market. Uh, you need uh, a combination of financing solutions, perhaps other incentives, and effective marketing and communications to move buyers towards the most climate-friendly, efficient products on the market and institutional buyers. Um, you need a workforce that's trained to install and maintain and dispose of these uh, air conditioners correctly. Uh, one thing that, I, uh, that we've learned is that uh, if a super-efficient air conditioner is installed incorrectly, it can be worse than you know a two- or three-star unit. Um, and you need commitment. We need commitment from a, a massive consolidated, I think it's something like a 150 or 200 billion dollar global air conditioning industry, uh, to actually start solving for efficiency and climate in a very serious way, not just for sales and profits. Um, the other, uh, critical technology piece right now is, uh, our fans, which are the most commonly used active cooling technology in India. If you think of ACs as the massive looming problem that we have to um, to address, the fans are the here and now problem that we need to address. And there's, again, a vast difference between uh, the most efficient units on the market, which are these DLDC or brushless direct current fans and, uh, uh, and regular fans. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the smallest piece of the puzzle, the, the, uh, uh, the cooling equipment itself. Then taking it to up a, a level to the building, uh, 
I like to say that air conditioning and inefficient building is like opening a tap of water into uh, a leaky bucket. Uh, and good building design, on the other hand, and construction minimizes the need for any kind of active or mechanical cooling. And that includes things like, you know, building orientation, insulation, uh, a cool surface materials, high performance windows, shading structures, um, ventilation, uh, and, you know, thermal mass. Uh, that provides some inertia uh, or protection against big temperature fluctuations. And it's worth pointing out that you know, none of these interventions are new. Um, in India's case, they're quite often many of these measures are, are embedded in age-old vernacular building styles, many of which we've unfortunately lost. Uh, yeah. And we also have a modern set of tools in the form of building codes and standards um, uh, that we can use to ensure that our buildings are really built to uh, ideally net uh, zero carbon and thermally efficient standards. On the building side, the other you know really promising set of solutions are cool roofs. So these are materials that you can paint or coat your roof with uh, that can make a difference even when other building efficiency measures aren't viable. Places like slums and informal settlements. Uh, or where building codes are, are effectively uh, ignored. So, you know, when sunlight hits a, a black roof, uh, you know, 60% or more of that energy uh, heats the building or heats the city's air. Yeah. Uh, that number is less than 10% when you're talking about a simple white roof. And there's some super promising new solutions and materials emerging from labs that are... Uh, as efficacious as an AC, so you know, literally provide as much cooling impact as an air conditioning unit. Um, so those are the building level solutions. I was <laughs> yeah, just asking about the same thing. What is the next level? Then? Yeah, so the next level up is is uh, you know a collection of buildings or or neighborhood, um, uh, and here there are a couple of interventions that are uh, are, are really promising. On the active cooling side of things, district cooling systems, which serve many buildings uh, with a single central chiller. So you can think of this as one massive air conditioning unit that serves multiple buildings. Uh, and it does that through a network of pipes and, and delivers massive efficiencies related to scale and related to the diversity of loads. So when one building's air conditioning requirements are, are really high and others may be low. And yeah. so you can size a system that in aggregate is much, much smaller than one room that would be required if you were serving each of those buildings separately. Um, and critically, district cooling systems don't exacerbate that urban heat island effect that we're, we're talking about. Uh, so these really need to be the default technology choice in any large new commercial or mixed-use uh, neighborhood-scale development where air conditioning is going to be a, a feature. Also, at the sort of neighborhood or street scale, um, there is a really important place for smart surfaces. So a typical asphalt road will absorb 95% of the sunlight that lands on it. Uh, concrete absorbs something like 75%. Uh, if you can increase the reflectivity of those surfaces 
and actually the permeability of those surfaces, uh, you could reduce surface temperatures by up to 5 degrees Celsius, uh, which is a huge difference yeah. uh, when you're talking about neighborhoods that are dominated by these materials. Um, uh, sim- at a similar scale, uh, urban nature has a really vital role to play. So urban parks and forests can be 7 degrees cooler than, than keyless parks in the city. Uh, the effect of that cooling is not just confined to the park or the forest itself, can actually extend the, you know, uh, three quarters or nearly a kilometer away from it. Um, just having a tree-lined street, and you, you see this in Delhi where you are, uh, yeah. can, uh, can make a three degree difference. So, really, a really important place for, for, um, uh, urban nature. And then finally, uh, you know, when you're thinking at the metropolitan or the city scale, there yeah. are ways to weave heat resilience actually into the city planning itself. Yeah, no, that's pretty interesting because I never knew that the line of tree on road can actually help in also reducing 3 degree Celsius or something. But it's quite helpful because I think most of the traffic generally is going around that line of tree. And that might be one of the positive solutions. Per se as well. Uh, but, uh, so now coming, as you just mentioned about the city scale and planning. So how can planning help in this whole? Like, what can be done while we are doing planning so that it can actually be taken care of in at least the expansion of the city? Because if it's already ground field, it might need much more work. But if it's uh, whenever the city is expanding, how can planning support in this whole ecosystem development? Uh, in several ways. Um, so, first thing to recognize is that urban populations are growing really fast, and uh, unfortunately, urban land area is growing even faster. Uh, and so, influencing, affecting patterns of growth and development is critical for any number of reasons. Critical from an equity perspective and a transportation burden uh, perspective, uh, critical because you want to obviously minimize land consumption, uh, you want to minimize the embodied carbon associated with, with sprawl, uh, you want to keep cities essentially more uh, compact um, so that distances are smaller and uh, we're not as reliant on cars and other vehicles as we would need to be. Uh, and, uh, and addressing that, those patterns of development or affecting those patterns of development is really critical from a heat resilience perspective as well. As I mentioned, 40% of anthropogenic heat in cities is generated from vehicles. So compact and mixed use kind of development is, is really, really important. Um, the other thing planning related is, is, uh, uh, building orientation and street orientation, which can either help you harness things like prevailing winds, uh, that can help lower the temperature of a city or keep a city cooler, or you can orient buildings and streets in a, a way that, that prevent that from happening. Uh, and then perhaps most importantly, um, Optimizing the distribution of, of green and blue space in a city in the context of planning is incredibly uh, yeah, important. 
uh, and incredibly important from an equity perspective because uh, this pattern sort of repeats itself all over the world. Poorer neighborhoods, uh, lower income neighborhoods almost invariably have a higher proportion of built up surfaces and fewer trees, less green space or less high quality green space. And that's certainly true of, of India as well. So uh, those are a few of the ways in which you can kind of consider or embed heat resilience or heat resilience logic into major planning exercises. Absolutely, that sounds pretty good. Uh, but then I think now coming to that, okay, we have understood that what are the different levels and how each level currently has some of the other solution which can be taken up. It's not like we have to be in the need for the energies. But I think one yeah. of the next challenge that you can think about is the cross-sectional administration opportunities that are required in making sure that this can actually yeah. work because especially in India when we look at it, your urban sector or urban local bodies is a separate unit and your electricity uh, comes from a separate unit. And yeah. those things don't stop. And then you need industries to facilitate all the different kinds of technologies which will require which will require a huge finance process. So how can those things be solved in context of specifically when you're talking about Indian context, uh, because I'm sure that every city or every nation will have their own different challenges. So the first thing I'd say is that uh India is ahead of the curve on this. Uh, it was the first country in the world to uh, very clearly articulate heat resilience uh, and sustainable urban cooling, sustainable cooling in general as a national priority in that it was the first country in the world to actually develop a national cooling action plan. So there is a policy framework that uh, can inspire and help guide uh, action. Um, yeah. And that now needs to basically translate into uh, a number of different stakeholders uh, realizing and taking very seriously that that heat resilience is a uh, a part of their job descriptions. It is it is their responsibility, regardless of the government department or sector in which they are are working. Uh, it's really important that people across a number of, of different stakeholder groups start to embed this heat resilience and climate logic into their operations. Um, so at the local government level, it's important to, to, and actually even at the national level, really important to have robust data and be able to visualize the impact. Uh, identify the areas that are subject to the most heat stress and have the greatest vulnerability so you can target investments and programs and projects toward them. Um, the other very significant lever that public institutions have and actually large institutional buyers on the private sector side is their buying power. Uh, and so you want procurement policies to consider things like total cost of ownership, uh, environmental impact, uh, ideally climate impact. Uh, and uh, at the local government, at the implementation level with respect to local government, uh, uh, you want, we need to give very clear guidance in the form of, say, of, say playbooks or 
or detailed guidelines on uh, on the implementation of various projects or, or interventions. Urban nature is a great example. Uh, what we one of the things that we need are really robust guidelines around things like species selection, planting, uh, the long term management and care of, of natural assets or or, uh, or trees in 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 a city. So that's you know those are some of the things that come to mind at the local government level. At the national level, the single most important uh, maybe policy and regulatory lever are minimum energy performance standards, which govern uh, uh, cooling equipment. And ideally, you want those minimum energy performance standards to be set as close to the best available technology as possible. If there's a big gap between the most efficient units that you have available on the market and uh, the uh, and the least efficient that the market or that regulation allows, uh, then just because of the nature of consumer behavior, just because those uh, worst performing units are cheaper, people will gravitate toward them. Even if total life cycle costs associated with buying an egg, uh, uh, an inefficient air conditioner are higher. So that's a, that minimum energy performance standards, uh, and labeling, that's a, that's a critical intervention. Um, Similarly, on the national policies and standards side of things, uh, policies and guidelines in place that encourage the right patterns of urban development that we were just talking about uh, are really, really important. Uh, so moving away from the public sector, thinking about the private sector, private developers and construction companies in the context of all of the construction that is going to happen in India over the next 20, 30, 50 years is absolutely critical. Again, they have tremendous buying power, uh, and uh, many of them are building entire communities, mini cities, essentially from scratch. Um, and uh, they have a really, uh, you know, profoundly important opportunity to design and build net zero, thermally efficient, cool neighborhoods and communities. Uh, and it's really encouraging to. To see commitments from some real estate developers in that regard, the Lodha Group comes to mind, and that's an example that I'm familiar with only because I might be working with them. I'm sure there there, there are many, many more. Um, and then you mentioned Puneet industry. Um, uh, the air conditioning industry, in particular, is heavily consolidated. Um, it's a 150 billion to 200 uh, billion dollar global industry, and uh, Today, they have not prioritized R&D in service of efficiency and climate friendliness. Uh, they've responded to the market signals that basically tell them that consumers demand the cheapest products that they can put out. Uh, but in the context of more and more corporations taking their climate responsibilities seriously, they need to commit to doing the right thing. Uh, so a couple of years ago, in partnership with the Indian government uh, uh, and and others, RMI uh, worked on the Global Cooling Prize, which surfaced uh, technologies, room air conditioning or residential air conditioning technologies that were five times more climate friendly than the standard or most commonly sold products on the market. And we now need to, to get industry to commit 
to actually commercializing those technologies and ideally uh, help match supply with demand. Because if those manufacturers, if those industry players have uh, some sort of surety or guarantee of demand waiting for them, then they are, then they will be willing to commit to, to producing the uh, a technology that's that's aligned with our climate goals and, and aspirations. So there's a really important role for each of those stakeholder groups to play. It's a complex issue. But one of the upshots of that is that everybody has to treat this as uh, as a part of uh, of their responsibilities. No, absolutely. I do agree that it's uh, it's all stakeholders and 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 that's I think one stakeholder I would like to come back to is uh, individuals that you mentioned the folks that the behavior change that is required. Uh, you also mentioned that uh, that uh, a super efficient AC is not used properly, it can be worse than a three star AC. Now, if that is the case, how how can we actually change behavior? Because unless and until it is made so easy for people to just switch on and off, they might everyone might not be adapt to that amount of technological uh, new technology per se as well. So how can behavior in general be taken into account when we are taking this to that? Um, so, you know, I think there are, um, I have a, a, a few different thoughts on, on this topic. Consumers are, uh, I think it's unrealistic to expect that consumers are going to, to actively consider climate when, um, when they're making purchasing decisions yeah. or thinking about cranking up or down the dial uh, on an air conditioner uh, at home. With respect to any individual sort of hierarchy of needs and priorities, the unfortunate fact is that, you know, um, climate and sustainability and energy system considerations are not going to feature higher high on that list. So you have to make it easy for them to make the right choice. Uh, and that's where, um, Policy regulation, uh, uh, innovative business models have a really important role um, to play. So one of the things I mentioned is that uh, um, that consumers generally will buy the lowest price option available to them, yeah. even if uh, that's going to be more expensive in the long term. Uh, consumers have what called implicitly really, really high discount rates. So you could buy, uh, uh, if you're, if you're affronted with two choices, one air conditioner is say a thousand rupees more, uh, expensive than the other, but that, that unit will save you a thousand rupees in the first year itself. And then obviously in every year subsequent to that, consumers will still quite often up or usually up for uh, the the cheaper unit, um, and so uh, financing uh, solutions and you know obviously allied to that communication and and, uh, and marketing that can actually influence behavior changes is really important. Uh, one of the things that a, a few utilities in India have explored and we think has holds a lot of promise is. Uh, 
utility on bill financing, a basically a pay-as-you-go model that enables you to pay for uh, super-efficient appliances or equipment um, on as part of your standard electricity or utility bill itself. So you're not you're taking that first cost premium essentially out of the equation, uh, and that's in the interest of the consumer because it will save them money. Uh, but critically, it's in the uh, interest of uh, the utility company and uh, uh, the power system as a whole in India because you're obviously reducing load and investment requirements. Yeah. Uh, so that's an example of you know nudging or making it easier for the consumer to actually do the right thing, to make the right choice. Uh, you can get progressively more sophisticated from there. Um, so uh, demand response represents a really you know, promising kind of area of innovation as well. And you can think of demand response as sort of two types, behavioral demand response and an automated demand response. But what it's about is basically uh, em- empowering consumers essentially to um, alter the operation of their cooling equipment or their air conditioners um, in in order to serve, say, grid needs or you can just say societal needs, more broadly speaking, in 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 exchange for some sort of reward. Um, and so you can imagine, say pre-cooling a room or a building when electricity prices are low, when demands on the, the grid are, are lower, uh, and uh, and turning that AC off uh, when the you know when the opposite is the case when demands on the grid and, and load is 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 higher. Uh, and so there are a number of ways that you can, you know, through these sorts of financing and business model innovations that you can encourage the, the kind of consumer behavior that you want to see. Yeah, absolutely. I think for new business models and uh, especially with a lot of new technology coming in and education coming in, uh, of utmost importance over here as well. And uh, I think coming to one of the last questions that we generally ask on these lines is more on the lines of, okay, now, we do understand that this is a problem and this is how it is functioning. Now. What kind of skill sets do we need to make sure that we can solve this problem? Because this problem pans around across all different areas. Uh, but maybe to, let's say, uh, for next three years or five years, what are the major skill sets required that these things can kickstart to make sure urban cooling can be, uh, while it is an important mandate and we have a mission it goes yeah. into more of a fifth-year sort of thing. Yeah. So it's not necessarily about creating entirely new skill sets or people in it acquiring entirely uh, new skills. Uh, it is fundamentally about the, uh, lots of different the, uh, people in lots of different occupations uh, treating this, as I said, as part of, of their jobs. Uh, and that ranges from the service technicians that install and, and, and maintain and dispose of our cooling equipment. Um, it, uh, it involves building design 
people in the building design and construction business. So we're building thermally efficient, um, high performance buildings. It spans infrastructure and public works. Uh, so that we're there actively considering heat resilience in their material choices and in their designs. Um, we talked about the importance of urban, good urban planning and considering, uh, heat resilience alongside everything else that flat planners traditionally consider around access and, and equity and livability. Um, transportation planners, uh, have to consider this, uh, in, the context, as I said, of, of vehicular traffic being a big part of the, the urban heat island effect problem. Um, forestry and, and restoration ecology, uh, people need to be part of the solution given the potential impact, positive impact that nature-based solutions could have. Uh, even utility executives and employees in the context of things like utility on bill financing and demand response that encourages the uptake of super efficient cooling equipment. So uh, we need people who, uh, across each of those areas, occupations, um, skills to, to be thinking about and actively working on the problem. As important on, with respect to skill sets is the ability to think and work across silos. Uh, and that's something that you were alluding to. So the public works person uh, needs to not just consider, say, durability and cost when they're resurfacing a road. Uh, they actually need to think about uh, uh, a surface that reduces the urban heat island effect. When you're building a road, don't just build a road. Make a complete street with protected bikes and pedestrian infrastructure, with street with, with trees. Um, uh, you know, when the forestry department is, is, um, executing on its plans, don't just have a numerical planting target, which is, you know, it's easy to point to success and say, oh, we've planted a hundred thousand or a million or three million trees. Uh, it's really important that they consider prioritizing those investments and those efforts in neighborhoods with the highest heat stress and vulnerability. Uh, so that ability to kind of think and work across silos is a really, really critical skill uh, if we are to embed this sort of logic into uh, into a city's operations, into the operations of private sector actors that have a really important role to play. Absolutely. I, I do agree that each level we need and then the across siloed approach also will be required to make sure that uh, we are able to proceed ahead on these lines as well. But if I have missed out on any point that you think should be covered under this topic, uh, please feel free to put it at this point before we close the podcast. Um, I, I think I just maybe want to emphasize the what's at stake here. Um, you know, first and foremost, lines. Um, if you look at Maps of projected heat stress, uh, that, you know, 200 million people in India that could potentially be exposed to deadly heat waves in the, in the mid 2030s if we, uh, you know, absent serious effort and, and intervention. Uh, so there's massive human impact associated with it. Uh, and obviously the, uh, you know, for the positive or for the negative, if you get it right, uh, it could have a Huge effect with respect to 
um, the country's population reduction and development goals. Um, you have 2% of GDP at stake, as I mentioned earlier, 34, 35 million uh, jobs, um, or the equivalent of 20, uh, 35 or, 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 or 34 million, million jobs. So it's a massive impact with respect to um, uh, India's growth and development aspirations. Uh, uh, and um, so there's, you know, it's just hugely important that we get this right. And as, as I said, that we treat this as everybody's responsibility that touches upon these systems in, in any meaningful way. Absolutely. I do agree that uh, this is somewhere a low-hanging fruit in itself for India, that everything's available. We have those grants, we have the bases. It's just that yeah. how do we make sure that they are there in the market? Uh, we have those building bylaws as well, firstly. And how yeah. do we make sure that those can be implemented in a better way? And then if we can do those things, it will be one of the biggest achievements to make sure that there is a good amount of mitigation already in place for it going forward. So thank you so much. It was absolutely interesting hearing about this topic because the amount of layers it has and the amount yeah. of depths it has. Thank you so much for listening. My pleasure, Puneet. Thanks, uh, thanks a ton for having me. And, uh, always happy to engage on this topic. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. Do subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and follow us on all social media channels. For more details about the Climate Center for Cities and registration on Climate Practitioners India Network, click on the link in the show notes. The episode is conceptualized and produced by Punit Gandhi. A big thank you to the whole team at C-Cube and NIUA for supporting the development of the podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode.